Welcome to Soundwalker. This is your host, David Rothenberg. This is episode 22. Lisa Wells. It's a beautiful fucking world. Now, Lisa wrote this incredible book, Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. It's kind of a depiction of her own journey, trying to figure out her place in a life of activism, poetry, writing about nature, but like many of us, certainly not nature writing. She's not a fan of nature writing. But what she is a fan of is stories that begin one place and then surprise us and go somewhere else. I don't know about you, but not only do I like those stories that become something else, but it's the only way I can write. Because the times that I've undertaken a story thinking I knew what it was and it turns out that's what it was, it's always just shit. It's flat. You know what I mean? Tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? I mean, I don't think I know how to write a story where I already know what it's about, where I've already come to some conclusion. I don't know what else to say about it. It's, there's no, it's like, there's no discovery and so it can't live, you know? So you're writing the story to find out where the story is going to go. Yeah. And it's a collaboration. Some of it is uncovering new information and making new connections. And then some of it is manipulation, of course, like I'm doing my own meaning making and drawing on sources that support the meaning that lights me up once I'm already in the draft. And you've been thinking about the, these problems for a long time, right? Which ones? The problems of the planet, the earth, how people fit in, what we can do about it and how much to fight the system or to transform it. Yeah. Or I would say I've had periods of life where I was devoted to those questions. And then I've had periods where I've been very checked out of them. So, but certainly as I write about in Believers, there was a period of my youth where I was quite committed to not only thinking through those problems, but really throwing myself on the gears of the machine. You know, that was the, <laughs> my hope was to actually affect change in some physical embodied real way, uh, or in some evangelist kind of way. Makes sense. I mean, you, you know, it's so much to be angry about. Let's just, 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 just fuck it up. Let's just destroy yeah. Let's just ruin the devices of, of, you know, of destruction. Yeah. Makes I think it's an important within the human ecology. I think this is an important niche. I mean, we need some voice that's sort of uncompromising and fiery and, um, willing to sacrifice it all. And, burn down the old world. When were you most excited about the destruction and the resistance? When did you say like, yes, we've done it now, it worked? Oh, I don't think I ever felt like it worked, but it's tough to, I mean, first of all, this is an adult who's looking back on her youth and making meaning from it. So I don't actually totally know. But at the time when I was like 16 and 17, I spent a lot of mental energy cataloging all of the sort of darkness and abuse of civilization. So from reading pamphlets on factory farms and, you know, visiting clear cut sites and just, I continually exposed myself to this, to the sickness of the culture, I think, because I was afraid to go along and to get numb, you know, because when gravity, everything is pulling you in that direction, you have to push pretty hard off of it all the time, right? And I don't know that I ever felt like I affected much change, but I cert certainly did experience thrills. For example, protesting with my friends or yelling at old people. What's an example when you, when you had the great thrill that could really seem to make sense? Like, yeah, yeah. this is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, can you think of one example? Like oh, this, that was probably, really, yeah. 
Oh, you know, actually, I think for a lot of people, the I, I was at the World Trade Organization protest in Seattle, the battle for Seattle, and um, I was 17. And my friends and I got gassed and we were walking in crowds of hundreds. And that one was fun, too, because the unions were still pretty strong and they all showed up. So labor was there and the Greens were there and it just felt like... Um, massive you know i'd never stood in crowds like that and of course you can't have the catharsis of you know the thrill doesn't arrive if there isn't some antagonist and of course this was like right when local police agencies were receiving all this intense military style tactical gear swat gear for riot cops basically for for crowd control so everybody was showing up in their full regalia and it was you know um so they just took the tags off so it was fresh and I'm sure it was fun for them to try it out so yeah that was probably the height of of the thrill of it and then of course the green scare really ramped up um, not too long after that and and the stakes changed and um, a lot of us had to ask like are are you really in it like are you really willing to sacrifice everything um, in order to affect what increasingly seems like not pyrrhic victories but a drop in the bucket. What did you feel you were asked to sacrifice? Well, you start seeing people around you go to jail for monkey wrenching logging equipment, or I didn't know people who were freeing mink or anything like that, but these were like friends of friends, like traveling the same circles as, as we were. So freedom, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. How far do you want to go? And then what, you know, we had this friend Treyero who, who did have to go on the lamb and um, wound up serving time for for eco-terrorism and it was, you know, the Pacific Northwest was a hotbed of this activity. And so a lot of, a lot of the people who were, when they did this big national dragnet to catch eco-terrorists as they called them, uh, a bunch of those people were living in the Pacific Northwest. So it was kind of, it was in our backyard. Right, it was the center. Yeah, so we're, are you a poser or are you the sort of, everybody was trying to model themselves on like Che Guevara. You know? <laughs> And I think we were, I don't know, I don't know that we were posers, but I didn't have any interest in going to jail. So at some point, did you decide that this, this dichotomy between poser and, and real activist was, was, was a myth, that it was like peer pressure and you said, hey, I don't need yeah. that? I think probably at first I just got scared about what was I going to do with my life. And that was coming from a lot of different angles because I was so off the map at that point, having dropped out of high school and having yeah having no real plan and no money and and that went on for for a long time and then i found art and it seemed like you know i think that there's a an element of for all of us when you're sort of you're trying on these different personalities as a kid you know while you're still your ego's still developing just to to see what makes sense or what fits like a glove and you know being a naturalist as i read about in the book spending my time in the woods it with a silent mind communing with birds was like the, the, the dream. But in reality, all of my energy was going toward poetry and I felt much more comfortable sitting in coffee shops reading the beats. <laughs> uh, so, that, so I just, I, I decided to stop fighting that reality. You feel all the big gun. You feel the big man. I decided to stop fighting that reality and, and move toward art. I can certainly relate to that myself. Like I, 
When I graduated college, you know, I was tired of all these, these, these egghead, windbag pontificators, you know, and I got me to go out there and, and be an activist. I went to England, worked for the Ecologist magazine, trying to build this radical new society. But I kind of wanted to be a musician and like, what was the place for that in this supposed radical vision of society these people were talking about where, where everything was kind of ideological, wasn't it? You know, mm -hmm. how could I fit into that? And, you know, people were, were harsh, you know, they were kind of extremely denouncing, denouncing modern society, but they weren't very nice to each other. Yeah. And it's like the regular farmers down the, down the hill, you know, were so friendly, ordinary people, like the ecologist people would say, they, they, the locals know nothing, they're so ignorant, you know, but they were so nice and they would, would give you everything, come and have, you know, food, you know. And the ecologists were like... Uh, the English elite protecting themselves against the, you know, the, 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 the heathen, you know, ignorant, regular people. It was like the class, the class divisions were so clear there. The English eccentric, you know, like Prince, Prince Charles is an ecologist, you know. Yeah, 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 like, sure. And then the regular people are just trying to get by, like, like. like yeah, and meanwhile, people, yeah, they're yeah. more intimately connected to the land this kind of that stuff, they're working. Yeah. That, yeah. I was, would be interested in what, what kind of, what were your inspirational sources in, in writing of any genre or that inspired you? Like, Well, I think I always feel a little caught out when I give a reading and in the Q&A or um, sometimes when it's just an interview format, when, when people ask variations on this question, I think because the honest truth is that I don't really read enviro literature, nor do I read nature literature typically, you know, like things that get shelved in that section. I'm not opposed to it. It's just not. So when I'm reading, I'm always sort of, I'm either reading for entertainment or I'm reading to case the joint because I want, I want to read great sentences and I want to reverse engineer how authors are doing things. So in nonfiction in particular, I'm just drawn to a voice. So I read a lot of essay collections and contemporary writers. I would say I learned a lot about how fiction writers approach nonfiction, because I'd read a lot of poets on prose and, and became way more interested in, in watching novelists turn their attention to, to nonfiction. So John Jeremiah Sullivan's book, Pulphead, have you read yeah, that? Yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah. Where's his, where's his next book? What's this guy doing? I know. Where he's been he? working on it for a while. Mysterious character. Yeah. Like I saw him well, once. Well, I'm, I'm waiting on him yeah, yeah. and I'm waiting on Gurevich's new book. I mean, to me, that o the opening of uh, we wish to inform you that introduction is astonishing. I mean, it's one of, it's one of my favorite pieces of nonfiction ever. And I can just like reread re it. And then when I, I felt like it was important to interject some levity and comedy throughout the book. Otherwise, uh, well, one, because I just wanted all of the world to be present. I didn't, I didn't want to like omit certain things because we're on a, you know, capital S serious subject. And so then I was like looking at Megan Dom and, Zadie Smith and Jonathan Lethem. I guess a lot of like Gen X fiction writers who are writing nonfiction. So really, I didn't read any nature books. I did read a lot of scientific studies. And I read a lot of books on ecology that are more like handbooks. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really ask whether it had to be a nature book. It's just like what, what kind of writing inspires you. So th those yeah, are yeah. good answers. Like, like, makes a lot of sense to find sentences that because I, I'm sure it's similar. I'm always like so bored reading all this stuff. Like there's so much like more of the same and like, uh, 
You want something that shows you like words can still like wake you up, whatever the topic, you know. And it's often in surprising places. But I also agree with you when you say that our heroes are always flawed, you know. I thought that was very interesting because you say that like at the end of the book, all of our heroes are flawed, you know. Was it was that a painful thing to discover? Or, in or, youth, yeah. Yeah. Although I'm glad I was disabused of whatever that process is of putting people on pedestals and then devaluing them for being human, that whole repetitive, deadening process that people are want to go through well into adulthood, which is a shame because if you pay attention to real people and not your projections and ideas about people, then you, you should come to that conclusion pretty quickly. Which is not to say that one shouldn't like feel disappointed when people disappoint them, but that that should be not cause for utter devaluation of the hero. Because a lot of the people I write about did have flaws and blind spots and, and probably abused their positions at various points when they had power or have a couple of fucked up ideas amidst all their beautiful ones. And yet they are living their lives. I mean, Phoenicia is a great example in extraordinary ways. And that's of infinite value, I think, because the only way to avoid those uh, mistakes or disappointing other people is to just not, is to hide in your house and not engage or sit behind a computer and with anonymity point fingers at everyone else. But when you actually very, come into the world yeah, and right. try to put your energy toward a problem or toward feeding life, inevitably your hands get dirty. Yeah, there's of course too much finger pointing today. It's too much like hiding and, and this kind of, you know, mass going after somebody instead of really appreciating the subtleties of situations and saying too much like we know what to do. It's all so easy. It's all so easy. We just need to act. Which is, of course, worth saying sometimes. But on the other hand, if you really learn about things, then you, you know that it's, it's hard. It's like, you know, it's, it's too much to take in. It's too much to... to I think there's a desperation the and a helplessness that is fueling. I mean, if you, if you feel enervated by the overwhelm of all of the scary stuff, that is too much to take in then it's natural to, I think, want to affect change in whatever way you can. And it, this is very immediate. You push a button, you type your right. 25 characters or whatever, and then you feel like you've done something. So what do you, but what do you recommend for people who feel like, like it's all overwhelming? There's just too much bad news. There's another fire. There's another flood. There's another study that says it's hopeless. We can't do anything. Yeah. What would you tell people who, who are reading the data clearly and it's saying those things? What do you tell people to do? I mean, this is what I think about a lot because I'm going to go in a couple of directions. The first one is recognizing, I think we tend to have a kind of, and I'm, and I'm not impervious to this, a sort of distorted sense of scale. So on the one hand, many things are out of your control and there's nothing you can do. You're small. You're a solitary being like within webs and webs of relationships and interactions. And as an ecologically minded person, you know this. So you're just one little piece of it. 
And yet we also tend to think that there's nothing that we can do that, and, and, and that's also not true because you, you can do quite a bit. So, you know, setting aside this question of yes, like a hundred corporations are responsible for like 80% of the carbon in the atmosphere, like definitely those people, you can affect more change by affecting these like people who are disproportionately fucking the planet up. But setting that aside as an individual, one thing that I learned from from the people in, in the book is that actually we have huge capacities for not only remediating ecological damage, but increasing ecological abundance. And so you you see in the case of Ron Good, here's a person who just by his and his tribe's initiative in collaboration with the Forest Service, they were able to completely rehabilitate this ancient meadow in the Sierra Nevada that had been non-functioning and choked with brush. It was basically ready to go up like a tinder bundle. And now there's been all this species return and that's 15 years with like maybe 10 days where people came out and rolled up their sleeves and worked on the land. So, you know, a lot can be done or on a larger scale, if you look at the Los Plateau in China where desertification has been turned, turned around and, you know, all of this biomass has returned. Uh, and this is happening all over the planet. You know, people are, are working on remediating compacted soils and reversing desertification. So that's like within our grasp and you don't even have to give up the rest of your life in order to do it. But, you know, the other thing I want to say is I think sometimes when we ask like, and I'm not saying you're asking that, David, but sometimes when the proverbial we <laughs> ask, what can we do? It feels to me that there's this sort of secret premise that like, like what gives you hope so that you can continue living the way you've always lived? You know, is there a way for us to proceed, but just like harm the planet less, but still basically like not have to give up anything and, and live in the comfort that we're used to or whatever. And I mean, I don't think that agrarian based civilization that practices totalitarian agriculture and produces exponential population growth can exist in the long run. I just don't. So whether that system sort of slowly collapses while other ways of life emerge in the dead spaces that are left, or if in 200 years that system collapses, I, I just think that that's probably inevitable. So I don't have any hope for this way of life. And it's, it's really beyond like, I don't mean to say that to sort of shame those of us who still participate in it, you know, because we're, we're creatures that come out of constructs and we have learned how to survive from our ancestors. And in many ways, these systems are sort of impossible to escape and impossible to avoid participating in, in some, to some extent. So also you're just, you're a locust in a swarm. But one thing you can really do, I think, within the course of an individual lifetime is reconnect to some of the basic ecological function in your own backyard, in your own ecosystem, and start overcoming the abstractions in terms of food, water, shelter, and those kinds of things. And then you can pass that torch on to future generations who are gonna need it to survive. And to me, that is hope because hope is active, right? It's not, it's not wishful. It's something we do. Yes, I mean, talking about hope is an important part of your book. And so are you thinking more there's hope for a way we can change society that, that isn't like 
taking stuff away that that isn't a sense of um, less but but more of a different kind of world when you when you speak of hope is there like this opportunity that comes as well or or is it really like we're going to cut back and don't want these things don't use all this energy we, we can't get food the way we've been getting it how, how does it have this hopeful way what it yeah, yeah. to you well i mean i think it depends on what your values are as an individual but for me we're often like asked to sacrifice certain things but i think the things we're asked to sacrifice that are framed as comforts are often consolation for other ways in which we've already been asked to sacrifice. So for example, maybe I feel guilty, like I shouldn't be watching 25 episodes of the show on Netflix and I should be out there like increasing biodiversity <laughs> in the world, right? Um, and aren't I selfish for spending this time and energy doing this thing? And I just, I don't think it's selfish. I think the 25 shows in a row or the 25 drinks in a row or whatever it is you're doing, it's not an act of selfishness. It's an act of pain relief. It's a response to isolation, to meaninglessness. And so I think given that or given the option of cradle to grave security within a, a community that's egalitarian and tightly knit, where people are situated in a relatively stable story that gives them meaning and purpose and whatever, most people would feel much better and fare much better in that kind of circumstance. So I think the hopeful idea is that we can build toward pleasure, we can build toward life, and we can build toward abundance and toward closer connection with others where we're not terrified that they're going to throw us in the garbage if we fail to do the right thing at all times, right? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense that you know, we can't do it alone. We can't just go on our own. You know, imagine we can solve the problems on our own and we don't need all this stuff for ourselves that this communities used to have people looking after each other so much more. and. Uh, you know, why is it that wealthy people think like it's so expensive to have children when it's like people with less money they have more kids and they're all happy they're all everyone's taking care of each other you know traditionally it wasn't seen as this problem this expense and, yeah and, and uh, sense that everything's too expensive more and more and more like again makes total sense so now you also uh, you spoke that you know connecting to nature is a real important part of what matters to you and, and you studied to become a tracker earlier in yeah. your life like you really mm -hmm. wanted to be a tracker and that certainly that desire totally resonates with me growing up in Connecticut and hearing about this guy Tom Brown in New Jersey this was like it wasn't like in the west or out in the desert or in the wilderness somebody was tracking somebody was tracking in New Jersey yeah you know and that made me think like whoa and then I knew people who went and studied that stuff they started to surface and then there was this whole thing like we could be we could know what's going on in nature around us and, and you went and did it you went and studied this stuff what, what happened right well we actually took this is like part of the comedy of errors we took the uh, greyhound across the country from the pristine Pacific Northwest rainforest to New Jersey to study with Tom Brown who was our hero and what happened? I mean, a lot of things happened. I think there was a projection of, I wanted to live into the books. So I wanted to become this highly adept tracker and wilderness survivalist who would like live in these egalitarian communities on the frontier of the post-apocalypse. 
But it turned out that I wasn't that great at it. I mean, there was, I could, I saw these 14, 13 year old kids who were younger than me, who were from a vantage of years, not that much younger, but when you're 17, you notice it feels like a lot, who could walk into the woods with a knife and survive. There was a lot of like heightened facility and probably if they were in the city and like at a rock club or something that they would melt down, they wouldn't know what to do with themselves. But so we had our own facilities. But my best friend Peter at that time who had dropped out of high school with me and went to this survival school, continued studying this stuff and then started a, a, a school of his own in Portland called Rewild Portland. So he still teaches people this stuff. So making friction fire and shelters and shooting bows and arrows and that kind of stuff. But they also focus a lot on the cultural side of things. So smash the state and... Right, uh, yeah. Yeah, but but do any of them really live in this wonderful community of the post-apocalypse? Does this place exist? Where I mean, where, I think yeah. the post-apocalypse probably does exist in some places for people, yeah. but I doubt if the people who live there would identify it as such, you know? Right, but in this positive sense, like, I mean, I definitely, you know, over the years was seeking these communities. I went to the farm and wilderness summer camps, with Quaker camps where everyone ran around naked, we were like naked teenagers. And this was in Vermont, and, and it was a whole like Quaker radical utopian life. Yeah, it's famous. Lots of people have been there, and they um, it's not as it's not as naked anymore. Of course, it's a different era, but it was like it was paradise. And I'd go back to like suburban Connecticut. Summer was so much better. Every summer, I go to this camp and we'd be wandering through the wilderness naked. You know, it was so fun. And then I have to go to school. You know, so that, like, like, there's a glimmer of this. I also thought that in the West, everyone might be living like this in hot springs, yeah. and like they're much more. So I went and did things like that whenever I could, in high school in the summers, and then, you know, but why didn't I end up in these paradise places? After a while, I wasn't sure they existed, because you know, mm -hmm. I got to know people more, what it was really like. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. the, that's the, the knowledge that, that, that the heroes are flawed, and that, uh, that yes, you can, we should be more connected to nature, but you know the problem with all this deep ecology stuff that I studied is these people who wanted to get close to nature also tried their hand at set talking about how people should live together. They didn't care about people. Like George Sessions and Bill Duvall, they just wanted to save nature. They didn't care about communities and people. When they talked yeah. about that stuff, it seemed very hollow. Yeah. Because they weren't like community people. Right. And that's... Yeah. And they felt they had to talk about it. And this... This is sort of the great betrayal. Yeah. Well, I want to ask how you, what your attraction to this was originally as a kid, but I also just want to say, I think it's tough to actually, I mean, I think you can have camp-like experiences. You can actually experience paradise briefly in these sort of temporary communities. But I think a lot of the problems that we face in activist communities or in commune sort of situations or whatever, whenever people are trying this experiment of, Coming, living on the land together in community. I think a lot of those problems are going to be solved when the out that we're all, at, that's at all of our fingertips is removed because then you'll have centuries of um, trial and error where people are f rediscovering these social tools 
conflict resolution and how to organize groups and how to sort of divvy up tasks and these kinds of things. But when you have this coming out of an individualist society, like most of us are in the West, and then trying to live with others, it's like, of, of course, it blows up in your face. And then you run back to run back to your isolated life. Yeah, we're taught to, we have to be original. We got to do something that's just us, our special way of seeing things. What a luxury. You know, if you're yeah. actually in society, you do what, what is needed of you. Yes. Yeah. Normal stuff. like. And well, and when your life yeah. depends on it and whether right. or not you get to eat and mm. whether or not you have a shelter over your head. I mean, right. you. I think you dispense with a lot of the bullshit and just get to work. Right. Yeah, 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 you change, exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, but you, tell me, what? how did you... Where, how did you develop this Edenic idea? You know? Well, I, you know, I, when I was six, my parents moved from New York City to Connecticut. We had this like a little shack-like house in the woods. My father was an architect. My mom was an artist. And, and then, then um, you know, so it was like suburbia, but it was deep in the woods suburbia, like a lot, a lot of nature. And I really spent a lot of time alone in nature, wandering around the river and the meadow and forests. and. And that's what I really liked. I was kind of, you know, withdrawn, sort of shy. But I was kind of nerdy. I was also good in math and science in school. And then I always was interested in this nature stuff more than all the other nerdy math science kids. Like I was into this nature side. So I had all my nature friends. And then we had this, this like math, computer, science friends. And then I, then I started playing music and all the rock and roll jazz friends and you know people getting stoned in high school behind building nine you know we had a california type school in connecticut like the all separate buildings that you know mm. some buildings would get snowed under you know i don't know why they built this thing it's the wrong kind of architecture for this environment but but yeah so but then i, I would go to these summer camps and i want to be outside in nature and then i started kind of imagining to combine it all I heard about Paul Winter when I was a teenager, the saxophonist who plays with wolves and things. And he lived pretty close by, so I got to meet him. Oh, I want to do that. I want to join his band. You know, it's nature and jazz together. And the mm. musician said, you know, as you might expect, you do not want to join this band. You know, he's insane, you know. And now he's my friend, but he's 80 years old now. So we can Wow, we can laugh so was about that this. your introduction to this idea? To the music of... thing. And the nature stuff was this summer camps and, and just being loving nature and, and wanting to hike in the woods and make trails and things. And then, so, like in high school, I was doing all this nature summer camp stuff and going hiking whenever possible. And in college, you know, I was supposed to be like a math science smart kid but I actually was interested in music and anthropology and all these like weird characters you know like Gurdjieff and Gregory Bateson people on the edges yeah yeah and people like that I went to Harvard a lot of professors like that were there they came in the 60s huh. they're not there now they're back again now we have weird professors there but but in between you know in the 60s a crazy person could become a Harvard professor it was all yeah. kind of loose and so I would follow these people around and says you're not really like a professor like you never published anything like shh you know <laughs> things like this like they were radical types they were in the, in the basements and these odd things and, and then I wasn't sure what to do with all this I kind of wanted to combine it all music and saving the earth and things and I, I, so, you know, I continued to go in that direction and then I was interested in I got more interested in literature. I took a class with Seamus Heaney, a writing class. I got really interested in these things at the 
edges of poetry and philosophy. It was all in between. Any regular discipline, I said, this is garbage. I'm not doing anything that they tell me to do. And, and, you know, and so I was kind of, and I was very sure of myself that everyone was wrong. I was going to do my own thing. And then it was like, (laughs) people were saying, you know, who do you think you are? And then I sort of, after a while, I realized that it wasn't really true that all the stuff I was interested in was actually also in Plato and Aristotle. Why did all these radical professors not tell me that? Because they were all radicals, you know. I felt like you know they were all from the '60s and then breaking the molds. And but you know many of them are very smart and you know serious types to this day. But but there was that side of um, denying all of history. And now I'm pretty much similar to that. Like I don't, I don't go back to the ancient things and teach them to people. I just encourage people to go deeper into their experiences and things like that. Hmm. And then I would say over time, I've gotten more interested in, in, in not my own trajectory where I'm the center of the story, which all my earlier work is, but more like bringing as many other people as possible into it. People hmm. making the story together. I think that's mm-hmm. the biggest evolution that I've found. That it's not just it's not just me alone against the world, or that that bringing other people in there. Maybe that's a sign of maturity. I don't know. Maybe it's 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 a story I tell myself <laughs> that isn't really what I'm doing. Because you know, but I, I definitely feel that um, also things are very different now. The way people talk and share information and learn about nature and all these things. It's at a definite moment of change. A lot of things are happening. We can't quite predict. Like, I don't think anyone's going to want to use a cell phone in 20 years. We'll be sick of all this information. Yeah. A few people agree with me on this. I think it's going really to right. go away. People are going to get sick of it, and they're just going to like want to experience in deeper ways. And technology can be a part of that, too. But this idea of deeper experiences. And I'm always asking students, like, okay, you know, all this imagery, all this music, do you, do you understand anything about how it connects? Can you put anything together? We, we can look at so much right now. Do you know anything? Do you know what to look at, how it relates to it? And people don't. You know, it's kind of like an ecological question. How does it all connect? I yeah. don't think people are, are thinking enough about, about it all. They just take this in and that in. And, and they, they, there should be more. You know, like in art school, no, nobody talks about what's good and bad. It's just like you have to make you a statement, but there's so much bad everything. You have to be able to at least know what makes something better or worse or want to talk about that, or we're just going to have like a mess of everything. Like if you, and, and that's, you know, it's important for me that people should talk about the books they, that really touched them and why, and that I really like this song. It did something to me. I'm going to play yeah. this song to my class that always makes me cry. So you know what? I'm going to cry now. You know, I don't like to cry in front of people. I'm going to do it for you because every time I play this song, I cry. Let's see if it works now, which is this performance of a song. I think it's by Joan Baez about Obama coming to, to um, sing Amazing Grace at that church where, where all these kids were shot up. You know, he mm-hmm. just comes and he's supposed to give a speech. He's crying and he just sings this song, The President. And this performance is with the Kronos Quartet and Meklet Hedero, who's an Ethiopian-American singer. And, and I still, every time I hear it, I just start crying, like, whoa, <laughs> this is like really doing it to me. And that doesn't happen to me that often. And so I, I really want to do it in front of the class, see if it will happen. And see, <laughs> see how they relate to that, like, okay. 
because I, know, I, I want them. I want I them to be emotional. I want them to like. Let's just get into it here. And they're all wearing masks. Like, what do they even think? You know, can you tell what anyone's expression is? Sometimes they're totally freaking out because it's really hard to live like that. But you just want to know. So I have a feeling that just doing this is going to be interesting. So it I'm makes me wonder to, if yeah. it's there's sort of a. On the one hand, there's way more acceptance of the range of human emotion than there was in previous eras. I wonder. Uh, but because it's been mediated largely through screens and not IRL. Mm -hmm. uh, right, IRL. <laughs> it still might be shocking to see uh -huh. a real person, right. a flesh and blood person in, in the room with you sharing space, having that experience. You know, what you said about you tell your students it's like it's not going to make your life better. I think one really interesting thing about you know the big the big quit or whatever they're calling this period post COVID is that it just does seem like it's almost a mirror of what happened with uh, the Great Pestilence, you know, in in medieval times where there were these very fixed systems that by necessity had to be totally rearranged and hierarchies were flattened and or at least shifted in response to this mass death. And I sort of wonder if, I, I, I mean, I guess I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't make a prediction, but it does feel like there, there could be lasting changes from COVID. That, oh yeah, like, like New York City, all these office buildings, is anyone gonna come back to them? Right. They're empty. Why? The, the work done there can be done better by people at home. Nobody wants to be in this insane atmosphere. Yeah. I mean, what's really going to happen to all this? Yeah. And why did we ever do it? And what? It's. Yeah. There's a lot. I mean, this has been a difficult period in my life. I was you know, in my third trimester of pregnancy when mm. COVID hit, and it's not been an easy introduction to parenthood oh, by yeah, any means. Sure, but I do, I do feel like it did feel like a kind of spell had been broken uh, to me. Like there was a, I don't know, especially maybe in Seattle because it's this tech capital. But it, it did feel to me like there was just this mindless grind everybody looking at their phones and and then all of a sudden everybody woke up and they were like sitting on their porches talking to their neighbors and uh, that's true that's a good thing yeah and many people moved to where i live you know north of the city like it started people are just streaming out there oh it's nice here you know here, yeah like mass exodus <laughs> yeah and, and then it's like the hiking trails got too busy but people all the things that they missed they were bringing up you know if you want this fancy restaurant we'll open one let's have this kind of food vegan donuts with a line for hours every saturday morning i've not been able to get one of these donuts yet just to see because the lines like i photographed the line because it's so intriguing like why i know we have one of those too like, not vegan yeah, donuts but right. different baked goods exactly yeah and it's just like this is like, this is funny to see no nobody nobody would have predicted this in this town in beacon new york where like they filmed nobody's fool when it was like a crumbling upstate destitute place that it would look like this this is like no one could have made that up yeah the question is are they all going to hightail it when when things go back to normal. Right, that's coming up now, but a lot of people are not because it's just better. Yeah. It's just, you can build a more, I mean, it's also get excess, you know, you know, giant expensive apartment buildings being built that look like old factories that are expensive. Mm. Like when old factories are all converted, like that's too much. Where I live is a more tiny town that cannot be destroyed. There are too many rules. But still, I can see other towns that are way more expensive that it could become if we don't stop it. I don't know how we stop it exactly, except like be nasty to people or something. Come, you masters of war. 
You that build all the guns You that build the death planes You that build all the bombs You that hide behind walls You that hide behind desks I just want you to know I can see through your masks You that never done nothing but Bill to just tell, tell me a little bit about that section of your book about paradise. You because play it seems like this world. real place devastated by fire, I but also this kind of metaphor for, for like the perfect place. You know? How does this connect to this terribly destroyed place by by our error is behind these fires, and yet there's this town of paradise, and you managed to say something optimistic about it. The, there's sort of the facts on the ground, as they say, uh, of Paradise, California, which I feel like most of your listeners will have some familiarity with, in part because of the intensity of the fire was unprecedented. I mean, it was so, so intense. There were tornadoes of fire. The fire made its own weather. It completely just incinerated a couple of towns in, in California. But also because it was called paradise and this it's touching on these very deep, even if like me, I wasn't raised Christian, but I was raised in this country. It's in the groundwater. You pick up a lot of these metaphors and the idea of being evicted from paradise by the hand of God, essentially, was very much on people's minds. And it was part of how people were reporting on it. So after this fire moved through town, I write about this one guy, Matthew Trum, who is a permaculturalist who spearheaded this initiative to repair the earth and help people envision different ways to live in the future. So maybe we don't want to live on the grid if PG&E is responsible for sparking these fires all the time. You know, maybe we want to move to solar. Maybe we want to build houses that are fireproof. Maybe we want to maintain our meadows so they can act like natural fire breaks and, and really just starting to think ecologically in the future because so many people were not only traumatized by the destruction of their homes, but by this feeling that this repetitive crisis was going to evict them from the life they knew. And you hear a lot of Californians talk about this, like maybe we have to leave. And I think the older story is this idea that, you know, coming out of the biblical tradition, when man defied creation, basically like the law that kept him in good standing in this ecologically abundant place of plenty, he was cast out and made to toil there's this form of exile and then made to toil in the dust as an agriculturalist. And that you can see these parallels between these extreme weather events that are happening now and the kind of apocalyptic catastrophes that early agrarian civilizations experienced in Mesopotamia. So anytime you're outstripping the resources of your ecosystem, you're going to bring about devastation on the land. And that's what happened there. And some of our oldest stories and the precursors to the biblical stories are about this phenomenon. Obviously, I also write about Gilgamesh and this idea that the lust for immortality is the thing that dooms his people and future generations to this desertified landscape of wildfire and floods and all of these things that we're experiencing present day. And that to make peace with mortality, to not seek immortality, but to acknowledge like I'm but a blip on the earth and to have this kind of intergenerational view where my life, my individual life doesn't matter that much. What do I need to do within my lifetime to ensure that future generations have 
a beautiful, abundant place to live. And that that's a value of indigenous and village cultures the world over, including Indo-European non-empire dwelling peoples as well. So that's kind of a long way around the question of wildfires in California. But yes, so so our situation right now may not be so unique because you go back to one of the earliest stories we have, the Epic of Gilgamesh, to say like they were dealing with the same crises in their own way. So are we are we should we shouldn't think that we're so unique with this unprecedented planet-wide challenge? Like, are we actually cyclically going back to the earliest stories we know? I mean, I don't think much has changed in terms of the central dilemma, which is if you're imposing domination and control on the landscape in order to ensure your survival above all others, not only the survival of other species, but the survival of your grandchildren then you're going to bring about devastation. But of course, the trauma that ensued in Mesopotamia or in Los Plateau or in the, in the Dust Bowl era of the US or whatever, those were sort of localized. And now we're looking at a global trauma that threatens all life on Earth. So are we to be okay with the idea we might not survive or do we just need to change so much that we know we'll survive? I mean, it depends on who we is. I mean, for my money, when, when I sort of become overwhelmed or when I lose focus or lose track, I just, and I'm not a religious person, but I do sort of make an ask of the world <laughs> to put me in service in my own way to future generations of life of all species, people, animals, plants, because this is what I most value in life. It's a beautiful fucking world. It's still a beautiful world. And I can't imagine why you would hitch your wagon to this idea of fleeing planet Earth. How come it it, it all kind of goes full circle to this oldest of human stories when we're trying to think about how to look to the future? Everyone wants in a book about how miserable the world is, some sense of optimism. I'm sure you smiled at that when people ask you questions. (laughs) What can we hope for? And so, but somehow you bring Gilgamesh into this, which is like one of the oldest stories we got. How does that fit in? Well, I mean, first of all, it might be a little bit reachy. I'm not a Gilgamesh scholar or anything, but for my purposes, I don't mind. The thing that struck me about that story is this idea that in his mad hunt for immortality, he clear cuts the immortal forest, which it seems like a a very good metaphor for what a certain kind of civilization, the progenitor of our civilization, did as well, which is this idea that, you know, in order to maintain the comfort and survival of the current generation, we're going to sacrifice the systems, the ecological systems that could keep us going in perpetuity if we were able to relate with them possibly more, less in a less controlling manner. <laughs> and what is his punishment? Fires, floods, disease. So he basically, he dooms his people in his search for immortality to bear the brunt of, 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 the, of the natural forces gone wild. And that's kind of where we find ourselves now. But also what I like about it is that in order to kind of keep your head and keep your people healthy and in healthy interrelatedness with their ecosystems, you have to remember death, meaning you have to have a sort of intergenerational view where the the prize is not your own maintenance, but the maintenance of, on this continent, seven generations in the future. 
And that really rhymes with question, how then shall we live? Because the question that is posed is knowing that all things shall dissolve, essentially knowing that you are mortal and your life is but a blip on the screen, how will you live? That should be the moral, the moral compass. So what do you think the immortal forest meant to Gilgamesh in those days? Like we have an ecological idea about that phrase now, but I love it when I hear it. Was it anything different when he was thinking about it? I'm sure a lot of people have different ideas about that. One thing I think is interesting about it, though, is that there's kind of this lusty jealousy of the gods. They're the ones who dwell forever in sunlight, and uh, the rest of us are left to kind of toil and decay on Earth. And so that's curious to me that, that there would be this kind of... It's like, on the one hand, he wants to destroy what he can't be, but also fashion himself as that very thing that he's destroyed. Yeah. Do we have this lusty jealousy of simpler times or like indigenous people living close to nature that lead us to want to become things like trackers or blow up bulldozers and get back to some like living among the trees or something? Or... I, you know, actually for me, the metaphor would apply in the other direction. Like we want to live in mile high buildings and inject the blood of young people into our bodies. Right. Uh, and use baby boy foreskin as a human growth hormone so that our faces don't age. Mm. And, you know, this kind of everybody's going to look like they're 20 years old and the air will be unbreathable. Do you, <laughs> do you think a lot of people really want that? Is that really a thing? Or, or, or are, we st are there more people still yearning for this simpler, these simpler times when imagining perhaps that we were all closer to nature and life was... Uh, you know, I don't, I don't really, I mean, I think there's sort of the, the, this gets at the tension of there's what we profess to want and what we do. So I, 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 I honestly don't know what people really want. I would like to believe that there's a desire for interrelatedness and that the sort of shiny baubles that we busy ourselves with in this culture are sad substitutes for the real deal that we we're not really sure how to access anymore but that's also my bias well how about you what do you want never mind everyone what do you want in this <laughs> situation that you're willing to tell us about i mean for me it's a little bit like you know when i got rid of my iphone it was nice for a little bit because i was able to recapture my attention span and all of that. But then you soon find that you're sort of marooned on an island amidst a hypnotized polis. So there's like, so what do I want? I mean, there's sort of like what I want for myself, but a lot of my nostalgia, I think for a pre-digital age is really just a, a feeling of communal connection that I don't, I'm not really sure how to, I don't know if it can be recreated. The genie's out of the bottle sort of, so. You know, to me, the solution to the big problems, you know, what I would like to see for the world is multi-pronged because it can't just be like plant more trees. It also has to be come to terms with your mortality and find ways to reconnect in these embodied sort of where we're using mirror neurons again and like accessing other ways of knowing beyond this kind of disembodied left brain stuff and develop real tangible 
reciprocal relationships with the entities on which our lives depend so that we're not just doing it because it's the right thing to do or because we're scared of what might happen if we don't, but because it matters to us in the same way that our loved ones matter to us. So that's the big dream. How to get from A to B is the mystery, and that's the question I can never really satisfyingly answer for audiences, I don't think. But why should I? I'm just one fucking person. <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's good. That's a good answer. I, mean, I find what you're saying echoes what many people say. They want to recreate community and closeness. And it's absolutely true. Many of us are doing it the wrong way through, through a technology that isn't really our friend. Finding friends that aren't really our friends and communicating in this disembodied way that doesn't have this real stuff. Last night, in preparation for my visit tomorrow to Biosphere 2, I was watching that film spaceship earth about its history and it's it's so amazing that that's what it's all about it's this group of people who just wanted community and some of them i've met over the years like kathleen gray who runs this art gallery in london they were just met on the streets of san francisco these people they wanted to be together and do something and what the something was changed from a commune to building a ship sailing around the world to building biosphere 2 it was the same people what they mo most wanted was to do something together and this kind of stuff is out there. Like the people who started Meow Wolf, the art, art collective. You know, they just want to do something together and it ends up being yeah. this something. And even the myth we have about these tech companies is they started like that. But I'm not sure yeah. after a while yeah. that... You know, so people actually can do it, but there's a lot of forces fighting against it that, that are telling you things. Yeah. I mean, so, I just think yeah. that one of the sort of... I don't want to be glib about this because I think you know there will be much suffering but one of the kind of mm -hmm. silver linings of a collapse scenario mm -hmm. is that i think the minute that it becomes impossible to like live via these abstractions we'll just go right back to it because you don't mm -hmm. overcome millions upon millions of years of social evolution in like 10,000 years or, mm -hmm. or even 200 right. years i think that that's how we will survive again. Yeah, after September 11th in my little town of Cold Spring, New York, all kinds of art and culture returned to the town. No one wanted to go to the city. And the pandemic, no one was allowed to leave the house, so it all migrated to the screen where people did all kinds of things together, but we weren't supposed to see each other unless it was outside. Then we started doing all this stuff outside, which was, of course, nice and, and good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let, yeah. let me hear about your interest in sound. How, why, how are you getting interested in sound? And because you, know, you I was said just you're thinking actually, yeah. is I have this dream of my first training was as an actor, mm -hmm. a theater actor, mm -hmm. and I studied with people who did this Spolin, Viola Spolin improvisational mm -hmm. theater stuff. Are you yeah. familiar with it? A little bit. Uh, yeah. I just love her, and I feel like she's an under she's an undersung kind of philosopher mm. of human behavior. It's not really like mm. confined to the theater, and also I think the way that a lot of people encounter these improv games, it's as a form of comedy, and they're not it, they're not uh -huh. really intended to be mm -hmm. comedic exclusively, mm -hmm. but to encompass the whole range of human emotion. But I feel like that technology is going to be really useful to people when and if. God willing, we are able to come out of this pandemic because I think the social rustiness or like um, misattunement that was happening already with the rise of the iPhone is just obviously exacerbated mm -hmm. by the last two years. But I would be curious to see that work 
in in a lab with your work? Yeah, you know, there's a whole movement of people doing improvisation, mixing theater and music to bring it away from comedy and think philosophically about it. There's these conferences and gatherings. And uh, I know a lot of people very interested in, in this exact thing that you that you said. Interesting. And well, maybe one day you can tell me more and I can yeah. see this. But yeah. I'm actually writing uh, my next Orion column about call and response. And that <laughs> being my half-baked theory is that that's, the, that's actually the that is the, the core of evolution. That's the force that, that's the gravity that makes the world go around. Thanks so much, Lisa Wells. Her new book, Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World, is extraordinary. You should all go out and read it. This episode was recorded at the Explorers Club in New York and the University Inn in Tempe, Arizona, and featured music by Hole, the Staple Singers, Charles Lloyd, Joan Osborne, and Charlie XCX. David Rothenberg. See you next time. Just